The presumption, unfortunately, for the poll aggregators is that if you take really good quality data and bad quality data, somehow that will average and you'll have better stuff coming out of it. That's Dr. Andrew Smith, director of the University of New Hampshire Survey Center, a veteran pollster of the all-important New Hampshire presidential primary as well as general elections. I say, if you have a bottle of spring water here and a bottle of water that I scooped up out of a mud puddle on the street outside and I poured them together, would you want to drink it? What polls to drink and not drink this 2020 election season on this episode I'm Robert Pease, host of The Purple Principle. And I'm Emily Corsetti, staff reporter. And there's an awful lot of polls out there these days. Look at the latest NBC News Wall Street Journal poll. Quinnipiac University is out with new head-to-head polls. Our CBS Battleground tracker calls Florida and North Carolina toss-ups. There was a new poll that just came out All today. the polls right now seem to paint the same picture. These are the national polls that are out there. Plus the memory of some very misleading polling back in 2016. The most recent CBS News national poll shows Hillary Clinton with a nine-point lead over Donald Trump. To put that line here, Quinnipiac. You see the stretch? 15 points. The Washington Post also has him at 15 points. The NBC Wall Street Journal poll, 11 points. So a double digit. Poll again. We said it shows a three point lead for Hillary Clinton overall nationally, but part of the reason. My interview with Dr. Smith begins on the touchy subject of the 2016 election polling. I think everybody, I was surprised that Trump won that election in 2016. Both our polling in the state was showing different things. Although, you know, you go back historically, it's always a matter of going back and looking at things, the clues that you missed, and things you learn afterwards that the Clinton campaign was anticipating that African-American turnout would be the same as it was for Obama in 2008 and 2012. Why would you think that you were going to get the same coalition of voters that Obama did? You know, those sorts of things, when you hear about it afterwards, you're just stunned that that was the logic. The Clinton campaign stopped polling two to three weeks before the election was over. They relied on big data going in and the big data said they're going to win in a walk. For example, the polling in North Carolina, there were four polls that made up the averages in the week before the election. Three of them were robo-polls. One of them was a web-based poll. So bad data in, bad data out. That's great info on polling methods. But we do also live in a very polarized media environment, and there's a lot of misleading, if not downright false information out there. Does that make it more difficult to poll accurately? I think there are a number of other reasons that make it much more difficult to poll people. First, the hardest thing to do is get a hold of them with cell phones and and caller identification and call blocking and a number of things like that. It just makes it hard to find people. That's a bigger issue. But the psychology that we have to understand about voters has always been there. People, when they talk to a survey researcher who doesn't know them, they still want to make themselves look good in the eyes of the person that they're who's asking the questions. So there's a great social desirability to look good. And the political scientists call it the spiral of silence, that if you favor a candidate that you don't think is popular, you're not only less likely to put a sign in your yard or have a bumper sticker on your car, you're less likely to say that you're going to vote for that candidate. That's the hardest problem. And was that a factor in the failure of presidential polling in 2016? I should first say that the national polls were very accurate in 2016. They were pretty much right on predicting the size of Clinton's victory. It was statewide polls that were much less accurate. And there was what we saw in New Hampshire specifically to that is that there was a segment of the population that was not willing to talk with us. And these were people that were 
Trump voters. These were typically men who had some college education. They weren't college graduates. They weren't high school graduates. They're kind of like blue collar, small business men. There's quite a bit of research that around the country that if you didn't weight your samples by level of education, you missed that Trump vote. But the interesting thing was we went back and looked at elections going back to 2000 and including an education weight didn't make any difference in any of those elections. It was unique to the Trump election. Interesting point about the spiral of silence and voters being afraid to say who they'll vote for. Seems like that must be worse during polarized elections like in 2016 and possibly 2020. Exactly, Emily. You're too young to remember. But if we look back to elections like Bush, as in the father, versus Dukakis in 1988, or Clinton, the husband, versus Bush or Bob Dole, the two sides were just not very far apart. And it reminds me of what Dr. J. Van Bavel said about how difficult and painful it is for people to change political identity or voting behavior. Even with a lot of evidence to do so, here's neuroscientist J. Van Bavel on why change is so hard. For most people, the notion of letting go of a belief system or a party identity that they've held really closely to who they are is horrifying. Because if you've been a party member of the Democrats or Republicans for 10 or 20 years, the notion that you're just going to abandon that after, you know, you have friends who are, you know, members of that party, you've posted signs on your lawn or stickers on your car, for you to completely abandon that is deeply threatening to a lot of people. So there's lots of incentives that people have psychologically to just simply ignore contradictory information. It's actually the easiest thing you can do in that situation. Which gets back to that spiral of silence in polling. And Dr. Smith seems to know what went wrong in the 2016 election with that segment of Trump voters. But how are we correcting for this in the 2020 polls? We're just getting to that. Here's more on changes in polling from the 2016 to 2020 elections. Let's just provide a little more explanation for our listeners Your prediction in 2016 without the educational weighting, was that for a bigger Clinton margin? Yeah, we had uh, Clinton up by about seven points in New Hampshire, and she won by about a percentage point in New Hampshire. Once we included an education weight, which really means what we're doing is adjusting the sample of people that we talk to so it reflects what the census data says the level of education is among people. When we adjust our sample to account for that, that's when our prediction would have been right on what the actual results were if we had included an education weight. It just has never been a factor in New Hampshire before, but we certainly have included education weights since 2016. So then your methodology in 2020 will have changed from your method in 2016. Right. That's one of the major reasons that survey researchers like to use data from elections because it's the only time that you really have an opportunity to predict something based on the the results you get to a survey. And historically, what survey researchers have done is adjusted their general methods based on the ability of a a particular methodology to accurately predict an outcome of an election. So that's happened. And has there been that kind of adjustment nationwide, similar to your own in New Hampshire, based upon the 2016 results? After 2016, the American Association for Public Opinion Research conducted a fairly exhaustive analysis of what happened with polling in 2016. And they concluded, again, that the national polls were by and large right. 
that it was the state polls that were much less accurate. And it was more the models that were being used by the media to predict what was going to happen in the election, which relied on those state polls that were way off and gave a misleading account of what to expect on election the most night. Recent CBS News national poll shows Hillary Clinton with a nine point lead. So changes have been made to polling since the 2016 fiasco. But we have to remember, polls are always a snapshot in time and can't be perfectly accurate. So there's always a margin of error. Plus, the media can cherry pick the polls they report and how they frame that coverage. Exactly. And let's not forget what Dr. Dominic Stitsua told us about the trend in network news over the past few decades. What happened is that back in the late 70s, early 80s, if you were following the news, roughly a third of the time you would encounter like a reference to a politician or a quote from a politician. So one in three stories, roughly. Now, fast forward to the mid-90s, we're now at 56%. Majority of content is now partisan. Fast forward to 2016, now it's two-thirds, it's 67%. So now, essentially, it's not just people who are in the echo chambers who are exposed to hyper-partisanship. It's everybody that even residually follows the news. And, you know, that kind of, that turns off a lot of people, uh, especially the kind of pure independents who are going to get turned off by politics. That is a huge factor, and we'll discuss more of that in a minute. First, though, I asked Dr. Smith for advice on all those calls that seem like polls, except for one little thing. The way they trash opposing candidates and physicians? Exactly. Well, like my colleagues here at the Purple Principle, I'm a lifelong independent in New Hampshire myself, which is a swing state, so I get a lot of calls, mostly push polls. And sometimes I honestly don't answer them. But what's your recommendation for our listeners? First thing that I would do is ask the name of the organization that's conducting the survey. Ask the interviewer who calls you. What's the name of your organization? What's the name of your company? Ask who is paying for the poll. So most of the push polls or what you're calling push polls are campaigns who are testing their messages and the strength of their candidate and the weaknesses of their candidate and the strength and the weaknesses of their opponents. That's perfectly legitimate campaign research, but it's not what we would think of as media polling. It's not the kind of stuff that's going to show up in a newspaper. So if, they're, if they get a call from an organization that says they're doing research for a newspaper or a television network or something like that, I would answer those surveys. That's an opportunity to legitimately have your position represented in the poll. So there used to be a little more of an American center than there is now. If you go back to the 1980s or 90s, at that time, there were six or seven moderate New England Republican senators. We're now down to one hanging by a thread. And there used to be an equal number of conservative Southern Democrats. There might be one and a half of those left. So why do you think that's happened? And is it reversible in any way? I think there's a couple reasons why it happened. The gerrymandering that's gone on over the last several decades, actually gerrymandering is as old as the Republic, it pre-exists the Republic, but the gerrymandering that's going on has become much more sophisticated and both parties use it to make sure that the great majority of their candidates really don't face any general election competition. That means the competition becomes primary competition where the activists are there, which causes the candidates to run further to the left and further to the right. The media have exacerbated this because they figured out the, the ESPN model that arguments sell advertising. 
So if you watch MSNBC, Fox, CNN, it doesn't matter which one of those shows, the goal is to get an argument between people because people want to watch through the commercial break to see the next argument. And that helps, frankly, the um, parties raise money because you can go to folks and say, do you hear what so-and-so said on TV today? Can you, We must stop them. Send your 50, 100, or $1,000 in today. And now with the internet, we can keep tapping those people. So it's been a boon to political parties in raising money by having a polarized electorate. So to a certain extent, it's working for everybody except the American people. Well, then what can we do about that? What about some of the proposed reforms to make the presidential election more rational or at least not as lengthy and expensive? I don't think campaign finance reform is the key, is, is an issue. I think that's kind of a, a moot point because candidates are now able to raise so much money independently from small donations by the internet. They can get more than enough money. The length of time that the campaigns go on is a bit much, but how, I don't know how you're going to stop that. I'd go a different direction. I'd say that in, in this case, Politics is too important to be left to the people. I think that we may have been able to choose better candidates for president when they were controlled by the smoke-filled rooms, by the political party bosses who understood who was the most electable candidate, who had the support among various institutions across their party and other parties as well, and uh, could make a better candidate. It's uh, the, the amount of the explosion in money and the protractedness of our presidential campaigns occurred after we went to an all-primary and all-open caucus system. And I think it'd be difficult to argue that the type of candidates that have come out of that system are especially better than the candidates that were put forward by parties during the previous 50, 75 years. NBC News, Wall Street Journal poll. University is out with new So even if polling has improved, and the jury's still out on that in 2020, Dr. Smith clearly says that our democracy is just not getting the best and brightest of candidates. And our featured guest on an earlier episode, former Congressman Jason Altmaier, explained why this is so often the case in congressional elections. It's all about the way we handle elections in this country. We have a system that is designed to elect and protect people on the political extreme, on the fringe. And that is because of what happens in our primary process. So you are seeing great disgust in the country with the polarization that we see all around us. Some people have chosen to disengage from the political process and just not vote and not participate. That is clearly not the right answer. But does Dr. Smith have any prescriptions for our democracy other than going back to smoke-filled rooms? No easy ones, but a more educated electorate sure would help. So at the risk of mangling Shakespeare, Emily, we could say the fault, dear voters... Lies not in our stars? In our stats, actually. Lies not in our stats. Ah, but in ourselves. So I think it is kind of a vicious circle that we're in right now. But, you know, the voters still control their destiny. It's not like that we are just pawns in this game and we have to do what the political parties want to do. To me, again, as a political scientist, I'm just stunned by the civic ignorance of our country, the lack of awareness of history, the lack of understanding of the, um, the institutions of the United States, their lack of interest in politics. We have the ability now to read newspapers from all over the world, and follow politics all of the time, but fewer people actually follow politics now than did 20, 30, 50 years ago. 
We only get about 20% who are willing to say that they could name their state senator. Only about 40% in the state can name their congressman. I think one of the biggest problems we have in politics is that we presume that the public really pays a lot of attention and cares much about politics. And certainly people in the press do, and I do, because that's the kind of people I'm interacting with. But in the U.S., we hire our politicians and we send them off to Concord or Washington and then we go away until the next election comes around. That was our featured guest today, Dr. Andrew Smith, director of the Survey Center at the University of New Hampshire, challenging you, the independent-minded American voter, to get informed this election. And we're trying to assist in that effort, but you may also want to check out Democracy Works from Penn State. And Democracy Matters from James Madison University. And the archive of Civics 101 podcasts by New Hampshire Public Radio. As well as important fact-based media out there in print form. Such as The Economist magazine, reporting on economics and politics for, you know, just about 180 years or so. And from our nation's capital, the nonpartisan Cook Political Report. It might be cliche by now, but a wise if cranky Englishman is believed to have said, Between puffs on a disgusting cigar, Democracy is the worst form of government. Except for all the others. Here at The Purple Principle, we have some questions about our imperfect democracy leading up to the 2020 elections and beyond. How did we get so partisan? How could we get less partisan? And can independent-minded Americans play a role bridging the divide? Tune in next time as we ask comedian Shane Moss whether partisanship has dulled America's sense of humor. I I don't think partisanship has ruined comedy. I think that um, cell phones have ruined comedy. This is Robert Pease for the Purple Principle team, Emily Cressetti, staff reporter, Kevin A. Klein, audio engineer, Janice Murphy, marketing and outreach, Emily Holloway, research and fact-checking, All music on today's episode was composed and created by Ryan Adair Rooney. There's more info and connectivity via social media and on our website at purpleprinciple.com.